Well, if you're a guest today, we are in the midst of a series. It's just a short series called Out of Context. We've been taking a look at passages of Scripture that uh, sometimes we love, but we take it out of the context in which it was intended to be understood. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Jeremiah 29.11, which, by the way, according to surveys, is second only to John 3.16. It's the most quoted passage and the favorite passage of, of most folks uh, uh, around. Recently, I served uh, on, on jury duty. Uh, I was number 58 out of a total of 60 potential jurors, uh, so they didn't reach me, but it was an all-day-long process, and it was an interesting process. I learned a whole lot about it, but, but I realized this, that if I had walked into the midst of that jury selection proceeding uh, out of context, I would have been totally lost and confused. If I'd have walked in when the prosecutor was asking the potential jury members this question, how much do you need to know about a house before you buy it? I, I would have been thoroughly confused because this was a class A felony and it had nothing to do with real estate. But having been there, understanding the context, the question made perfect sense. What he was trying to do was to determine a potential juror's ability to understand the concept of beyond reasonable doubt. Since when you buy a house, you never know everything that is about the house, but you get to a point where you know enough about the house and its problems to say, I'll buy the house. Well, in any kind of a trial, you probably don't know everything that you want to, but you finally reach a point where you can decide beyond a reasonable doubt. Context makes all the difference. And again, I want to tell you that context accounts when it comes to understanding God's Word. And if you weren't here last week, let me say again that asking some important questions really helps us understand certain passages. For instance, who penned these words and to whom was it written? When was it written? And what was the occasion or the reason for its writing? How did the first readers of this passage understand it in light of their culture and history? And then this question is important too. Why has this passage been preserved for us? Those questions will be important as we take a look at this passage from the ministry and prophetic service of Jeremiah. And I'm really, I'm really actually kind of surprised how many people put this at the top of their favorite scriptures list. As a matter of fact, this came up when we were back in our Lifeline series in the summer. And I purposely did not preach on that in the Lifeline series because I knew I was going to be using it in this series of Out of Context. Now, I see some of you already grabbing Kleenexes and dabbing at your eyes, thinking that I'm going to destroy this passage of Scripture in your minds. Just blow your nose and give me a chance to explain, all right? Put away your tissues. You don't need them right now. But knowing the context will not lessen the power of this passage, but it may it may change your understanding of this passage, and I hope it will. Now, let's, let's read the verse out of context, just as we oftentimes quote it. Here it is. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's a great verse, tremendous verse. But out of its context, we're, we're liable to infer things or interpret things that maybe aren't intended for us to interpret. Uh, let me see if I can set the stage for this passage of Scripture. Jeremiah ministers during the most difficult time in Judah's history. 
The Hebrew people are caught in the crossfire of three nations who are trying for global dominance, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians. And the Babylonians win, and they become the dominant world power for the next seven decades. Now, the area of ancient Babylonia is still a region of unrest today, and, and what was the region or the power of the nation of Babylon at that day and time uh, encompasses parts are all of the following current-day nations. Iraq, Iran, Syria, Kuwait, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Lebanon, Cyprus, and Israel. That is one massive ancient nation. The comparatively small nation of Judah had abandoned the worship of God and adopted the idolatrous practice of its, of its neighbors. And time after time, God through his prophets pleaded with the people to return to him, to, to embrace his message, to leave behind them the idols that were destroying their worship and their nation. But nobody wanted to listen. So in the year 596 B.C., the miserable Jewish king Jehoiakim Chin and the majority of the people were departed, deported to the city of Babylon. Now, this happened in more than one deportation, but uh, the king Jehoiachin and the people were taken in captivity. The journey would have taken place through the, the Fertile Crescent at that day and time, which would have made it approximately a 900-mile journey. It would have taken four months on foot. Can you imagine walking four months to get to a new home? You would have thought for sure you were never going back. Jeremiah, whose name means God establishes, is a central figure in the story. Even his name suggests that God has a plan for you. God establishes. God has a plan for you. Uh, Jeremiah is, is also called the weeping prophet because he tears he, he, he tears up, he, he, he weeps for the people because of their refusal to hear what God had to say. That sounds all too painfully familiar, doesn't it, in our 21st century? That we live in a land where people really don't want to hear what God has to say any longer. Jeremiah was a man of strong character. He was sensitive to the sins of the people which he faithfully rebuked. He was fearless in his predictions and in his judgment on Judah. He was relentless in his battle against the false preachers and teachers. He suffered great abuse. He was placed in stocks. He was forced to wear a yoke around his neck to symbolize the fact that, that Israel was under a yoke of, of, of sin. Uh, he was thrown into a dry, mucky well where he had no food and water. He was imprisoned behind bars. He watched helplessly as the king ripped up and burned the scrolls of his prophecies, the, the words of God themselves. God had told... God told Jeremiah, said, Jeremiah, don't even marry and don't raise up any children. This culture is so bad, I don't even want you to marry. So Jeremiah had nobody to go home to at night. He felt so alone. Listen to this heartbreaking verse in chapter 16. God is speaking here, and Jeremiah records these words. I have withdrawn my blessing, my love, and my pity from this people declares the Lord. It was a miserable time. When the deportations came, Jeremiah was left behind to minister in Jerusalem. 
There was, still, there was still time after the first deportation, but they didn't want to hear his message. But this courageous and lonely preacher continued to preach. He witnessed no positive responses to his message. He spent much of his time in sorrow. He never led a growing congregation. Instead of building programs, he prophesied building destruction. He faithfully preached for 41 years in Judah's history and by all human standards of evaluation. Jeremiah was a failure. But Jeremiah is known as one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Abducted by his people in the end, he was carried off to Egypt and died himself in a foreign land. God's plan and purpose was fulfilled in and through Jeremiah, even when it appeared that just the opposite was really happening, folks. I marvel at his ministry. I marvel at his courage. I marvel at the man that he was, and I'm convinced I could never be a man like Jeremiah. And you say, well, what does all of that have to do with this marvelous verse that I love to quote that I hold so dear to my heart? Well, that verse is actually a part of a letter that Jeremiah wrote to those who had been deported to Babylon. Jeremiah writes from Jerusalem, has a, a, uh, sends the letter via uh, an emissary who is also on his way to Babylon and delivers this letter to the captives who are now in the, in the city of Babylon. Now, why, why write a letter? It's because the people who were captives were listening to a guy by the name of Hananiah. Hananiah was a false teacher, and he was going around telling everybody, hey, don't panic, everybody stay calm. This is only going to be two years. God then is, is going to destroy Babylon. He's going to release us. We're going to go home. Just hang on for two years. Good news is coming. And the people said, yes, Hananiah, we love your preaching. And Jeremiah writes this letter to say, no. No, 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 Hananiah is not a true preacher. He is preaching a message that is not there. And so he begins with bad news. He says, I, I want you to know, you're not coming home in two years. Hananiah is not a proclaimer of the truth. It'll be 70 years before God brings home a remnant. 70 years. That would have been so deflating. That would have been so disheartening. Just imagine, you're 40 years old. You're one of those who's been deported from the land of Judah into the land of Babylon. And you read Jeremiah's letter for the first time and you add some quick math in your head. I'm 40 years old. 70 years from now, I'll be 100, 110. I'm not going home. I'm going to die in this pagan city. I will never see Jerusalem again. I will never see family again. How demoralizing that would be. Sometimes the truth is hard to bear, but the truth is always what we need to hear. And Jeremiah goes on in this beautiful letter to talk about two purposes that God has for the people. And the first one is a societal purpose, and the second one is a spiritual purpose. Now, let's understand the letter in its context. I'm going to start reading in verse 4 of chapter 29. And we're going to take a look, <coughs> excuse me, at the societal purpose first. Verse 4 says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses 
and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives uh, and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number while you're there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God says, you get accustomed to this place. This is going to be home for you. Pack up your tents, put them away, build permanent houses. Till up your backyards and plant gardens and enjoy the fruit and the vegetables of those gardens. Get married, have a family, have your kids get married and have families. Keep growing stronger and bigger because in 70 years, I'm going to bring some of you back home to Judah. And And then comes this powerful imperative. This is a command. While you live in this foreign, pagan, godless city, pray for it. Ask God to bring it peace and prosperity because if the, if the city does well, you will do well. Now this must have been like getting hit between the eyes with a two before for all of these Jewish people. You mean, God, you want me to pray for these people who hold me out of my homeland, who rip me away from family, who have placed me here away from all those that I've loved? You want me to pray for this city? Yes. Pray for them. Don't pray against them. Oh, my goodness, what an incredible principle this is for us to remember. As Christians, the Bible reminds us that we are not citizens of this world. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. So technically speaking, we are captives here. We are strangers in this world. We are living in a foreign place. We are like captives in a manner of speaking, and we will die here in this world as captives of the power of sin. But that's okay, God says, because God has a plan and a purpose for us here. So settle down, make this world a home while you're here, pray for the world, seek peace and prosperity for this place in which we live, because if the world is blessed, because we live in it, we too will be blessed. Folks, if if there's ever a yes to love story in the Bible, this is it. If there's ever a pattern for our For our vision of yes to love, it is here. It is loving God first and loving others in God's name. Secondly, it was a challenge to the Hebrew people to be a blessing to Babylon, but they did it. How much easier then should it be for us to be a blessing to Bloomington and Monroe County and beyond? Do do we really understand what this passage is teaching us? We need to look for ways to pray for our community, to help our community, to work in our community. To honor God by honoring the place where he has planted us means that we are living out God's plan. So pray for the people of this city and seek God's peace and blessing for it. It is part of God's plan for us to do so. And if the blessings that come as a result of our prayers bless this community, then in turn we'll be blessed as well. I have to wonder this. just, Just imagine for a minute. How many people from Babylon will be in heaven who could tell a story like this? 
I did not want these captives moving into our city. They came from far away in that land of Judah. I just hated them being next door, but they loved me. And they were kind to me, and they were gracious to me, and they told me they were praying for me. And the longer that I lived around them, the more I became convinced that they knew the real God. And I found God, and I found the, a future, and I found eternity because these people loved me. Imagine being a Jewish captive in heaven and having a Babylonian neighbor walk up and say, I'm here because of you. Now, let me ask you, how many people living in southern Indiana will be able to say, I live next door to, or I work next door to, or I was in school next to, a person from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church who was kind and loving and gracious to me. At first, I didn't like it, but I could not ignore it, and I came to realize that they knew the way to salvation. I met Jesus Christ with them. Who is going to walk up to you in heaven one of these days and say, I'm here? Because you loved me in Christ. I, I can, th th there is no greater mission, there is no greater purpose with us and for us than to help as many as possible find Jesus Christ and go home when our captivity in this world is over. If you're moving away from here, or perhaps you've just moved from someplace else to Bloomington. You're not excited about being in Bloomington or you're not excited about where you're moving away. Will you remember this, that God has a plan for you and that maybe where he is taking you or maybe where he has brought you is the best place you can be. Adopt this passage as a principle for your future. Pray for the place where you are going. Seek for ways that God can use you where you are because when you do that, trust me, you will be blessed. And you're not alone. By the way, Jeremiah wasn't alone. Daniel and Ezekiel were in Babylon preaching the same thing. Habakkuk and Zephaniah were with him in Jerusalem preaching too. We're never alone in what we're doing. God has called us together to make a difference in our culture, in our city, in our world. But, but there's more. Let, let, me, let me take you to the spiritual side of this letter. And I'm going to begin in verse 10. And, and it's in this passage where we have that marvelous verse that we love so much. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. There are five action words in this verse that unlocks this promise. Five action words that God says, when you do these things, when you call upon me, when you come to me, when you pray to me, when you seek me, when you find me. These are the actions on our part, and God says, and when you seek me with all of your heart, then I will be found. Count on it. God has a plan for you. 
to the Hebrew captives in a foreign land, this surely didn't seem like much of a plan. And I'm confident that Jeremiah even wondered about the purpose that he often held in, in the plan of God. But you can say one thing, God is a God of surprises. And just when you think you've got God figured out, <laughs> God will surprise you again because God just specializes in these twists and these turns and bringing his plan about in the most unique and awesome way so that there's no other conclusion but this, God is at work. Now, the part of the promise here that we really need to understand in its context is the phrase, plans to prosper and, and not harm you. Now, that would have meant something altogether different to the captives in Babylon than to us 21st century Americans here in Bloomington. When we think of prospering and no harm happening, we think of this immediately. Prosper to us means material blessings, and no harm coming to us means that we're safe and healthy. And so we read this and we think, aha, I know the plans I have. God wants to make me rich and famous, as Jack said in the video. That's how we conclude it, healthy and rich and famous. But I'll tell you, no one who read this letter for the first time would have understood that promise in that light at all. They were captives. They had no hope of becoming rich and famous in Babylon. Even on the best of days, they never dreamed of rising to the level of an ordinary citizen in Babylon. This principle really came home to me. I understood this passage better for the first time in my life when, uh, when some of us were in India, and on the first Sunday night there, I had the privilege of preaching for a Burmese congregation that were refugees in, in the inner city of New Delhi. Now, the, the, the government had allowed them to come, but the government had confined them to this small area. The government paid them a stipend with which they could hardly buy rice to survive on, and yet the government forbid them from ever taking any other kind of jobs, forever leaving that part of the city. They, they were captors in the, in the greatest sense of the word. They had escaped death in Myanmar, but they were, they were floundering. They were floundering in the inner city of New Delhi, and, I, and when I preached that night, this little, this little room was packed full with people from wall to wall, and their only hope was in a life beyond this world. For them to have read that passage and to have understood it as some kind of a physical blessing or a material blessing would have been unrealistic. But if you look at it as a spiritual blessing where God says, I have plans for you. I'm going to make you spiritually strong. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to give you a hope. I'm going to give you a future. That would have meant something to those people. Because you see, I think this has great spiritual roots. Our hope is never in our future here. It's always found in going home. And besides, true and lasting contentment never comes from physical or material blessings anyway. It comes from a relationship with God that bleeds down to our relationships with others, and it is our relationships that matter most. Did the Hebrew captives prosper? Yeah, their families grew, and they became stronger as believers. When it came time to go 70 years later, they were spiritually strong. Do you know what the blessings were that came out of the captivity? Let me give you a couple. When these people left Babylon, went back to Judah, number one, they had left, they had given up on idols. This is the first time in, in Judah's history they'd given up on idols. They really went home, a monotheistic group of people, to serve God and God only. And the other thing they took with them was the synagogue. 
There were no synagogues prior to that in, in, in Israel. All that was there was the temple, and that's where they worshiped. But when the temple was destroyed and they got carried off into exile, they built these places of worship where Jews would come together in order to worship and to grow together. And the ancient synagogues that Jesus taught in became the model for the church where we as Christians come to grow and to worship together corporately. Every time we gather together on a Sunday morning in a place like this, we are modeling after something that happened in the worst experience of the Jewish people, their captivity in the city of Babylon. When I understand this verse in its historical and cultural context, I love it even better. I do believe that God knows the plans he has for each of us, and regardless of what happens in your life, physically or materially, God is in complete control. I can tell you, one of these days my health will be gone. And one of these days, who knows how all the material blessings that we have as Americans, whether they'll be gone or not. But when your health breaks, and when your bank account breaks, can I remind you, God is still in control, and he's saying, I've got plans for you. Don't you, don't you lose heart. I've got plans for you. It may not look like it, but someday when you get to the end of your life and you look back, you will see how God has kept his plans intact. Sometimes out of the bleakest beginnings comes the greatest hope. Let me give you an example that grows out of the early days of our country here. A young infant slave boy, his mother and sister were kidnapped from their Missouri plantation home one night by Confederate raiders. The mother and sister died somewhere along the journey, and the infant boy was sold to a family in Arkansas. When he was in Arkansas, he got whooping cough and nearly died. And so when his, when his Missouri master finally rescued him and brought him back to the plantation in Missouri, the boy was too weak to work in the fields. The, the, the whooping cough had left him with a weakened constitution. So here he is. He's a captive poor health, no blessings of this world. But this young boy took a great interest in the plants of the field, and he studied. When he could not work, he studied. And, and, and soon he gained the reputation that actually they nicknamed him the plant doctor. If something was wrong in the crops and the fields, they would call for this young man the plant doctor, because he knew more about plants than anybody else. And, and, and his, his master was named Moses Carver, and this young man's name was George Washington Carver, and he went on to study the peanut and the sweet potato and the soybean and transformed how we understand those products. They transformed what was able to grow in the South, transformed history, but George Washington Carver never became what we would call a, a wealthy man. He didn't really want to be. On his tombstone are these words because he always gave all of his credit to God. He said, he could have added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honor in being helpful to the world. Should that not be on our tombstones? Pray for this city. Make a difference where you live. Know that God has called us and he has a purpose for us unlike any other. Jeremiah was right. Jeremiah also wrote the book of Lamentations, folks. He did so. He wrote the book of Lamentations while sitting in a small cave on a rugged 
Nobby Hill, just outside the city of Jerusalem. If, if you looked at this little Nobby Hill from the right angle, these little caves almost made it look like a skull. And in this cave, where the weeping prophet wrote some of his most powerful stuff, would later become the hill where, as Jeremiah's tears had flowed, Christ's blood would flow to wash away our sins. You see, God really had a plan. And the hill became Golgotha, Calvary. And on that hill, God brought his plan to its greatest moment. I know the plans I have for you to spiritually prosper you and not bring you harm, to give you hope and a future. 